This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. It's kind of like a backwards striptease. I didn't write this book for believers. God is circumcised, clearly. I like the idea of a theological pigeon. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? Francesca Stavrakopoulou is Professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Religion at the University of Exeter. I normally wouldn't stress her job title, but I have an idea that we might be saying a couple of contentious things. Uh, so there is some point to giving the bona fides. Francesca, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So the book is called God and Anatomy. And just to be clear, it's precisely that, isn't it? A tour of Yahweh's body from head to toe, quite literally. Yeah, or from toe to head. I, <laughs> yes, because yeah. you start with his feet. It's kind of like a backwards striptease. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's basically it's telling the cultural origins and earliest history of the deity that we mostly know as God in the Western world, mm-hmm. um, who began life in the southern Levant um, about blah, three, three and a half thousand years ago. Um, and yeah, and it sort of tells the story of this deity through and his characterization and portrayal and the ways in which his ancient worshippers un- understood him um, and how those things are reflected and refracted, I suppose, in the Bible. Well, now, modern day worshippers are going to say, oh, yeah, but that's all that's all allegorical when you talk about God's feet or God turning his face away or um, all, all the other. And we'll come to some quite racy ones in due course. Um <laughs> They're going to say it's all allegorical, um, but they're retconning, aren't they? They're 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 misreading the the Bible that we have. Yeah, I mean the biblical texts are very elastic in the sense that they, you know, the, the reason that they've survived, the reason that they've been transmitted over many generations and edited and reshaped and re-edited, um, is that they're so ripe for like any kind of literature, so ripe for reinterpretation. So as people's views of the divine shifted and changed so most christian and jewish readers today would look at these texts and say oh this is metaphorical language this is poetic you know yes it's beautiful and isn't it lovely but these things are not meant to be taken um literally but what i argue in the book is that well actually originally ancient worshippers understood this deity to have a human shaped body um it was very different from their own bodies from human bodies in lots and lots of ways but it was human shaped um and that a lot of the imagery that we read about in biblical texts derives from this very common, widespread cultural tendency across ancient Southwest Asia to understand the gods as having human-shaped and human-like bodies, but on a much bigger, more glamorous, exciting, terrifying scale. I have to say that with, with your book, I, I was I was kind of like a, a six-year-old at Legoland. I, I don't know where to go first, except that I sort of do. I want to say I, I tend to divide uh, books on religion into into uh, polemical and scholarly mm-hmm. books. And well, you're you're a professor at a university, so <laughs> it is it is thoroughly scholarly. Was there any part of your intention to put the cat among the pigeons as well? Um, not so much put, putting the cat among the pigeons theologically. Um, I didn't write this book for believers. Um, I wrote this book for people who aren't Christian or Jewish and who might not well know the Bible particularly well, or they might think, mm, yeah, it sounds really boring. I'm not really interested in it. Or so, they might have read it as children yeah. and taken taken those things on board, but but had it uh, 
explained to them that um, that you know God didn't actually walk in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, exactly. Whereas that's clearly the intention of of the, of the narrative. Yeah, and I think that's really important to show that you know I wanted people to understand these texts as they emerged in the ancient social and cultural contexts in which they were written and, and passed down and reshaped. Um, so yeah, this book wasn't written for believers. Um, some of you know some believers who have read it have really enjoyed it and and really like the fact that, that and some are, some are going to really dislike it I and think. some people are going to hate it but you know <laughs> I so I, it wasn't about setting the cat among the theological pi theological pigeons I like the idea of a theological pigeon <laughs> um yeah it was more about saying look the Bible's really really interesting and ancient religion is really really cool and fun and interesting and I wanted to show people why that is. With, with that in mind, of course, uh, the book is uh, mostly about Yahweh, the, mm -hmm. the, the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you very, very deliberately and carefully place him in context when there was a time when he wasn't the only God. Uh, and modern believers like to imagine that, or it's, it's that Ricky Gervais thing, isn't it, about, you know, all, all those gods are made up and they're just silly stories, except yours. Yeah. Your mm -hmm. God is real. Now, Way back when, and we're going back, let, let, we probably need to do some dates here, but we're going back a couple of thousand years before the current era, as we like to say. Well, more than that, yeah. Um, about, about three, say about 3,000 years. Well, yeah, but I was going to come on to this later, but then when did God become, uh, when did uh, the Jews develop their monotheism? When did God ditch his family and his uh, all the other accoutrements and, and stop you know, having contests with the other gods? Yeah, well... That's a very difficult question to unpack in the sense that we can't really talk about Jewish people until about, you know, at the very earliest, conservative scholars, you know, at the very earliest would say, say about blah, 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 the 5th century BCE, so before the Common Era. Um, that's when you can really, really start to talk we, we about... We can't talk about... No, we, because the word didn't mean, that. you know, there is no, in that sense, there's no word for Jewish in, in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. You could talk about Hebrew, the word Hebrew appears, mm -hmm. the term Judah and Judahite appears. But, you know, these are different sorts of labels. They're not the kind of those labels, um, the label Jewish is not and, and Jew is, is not used in the Bible in the way in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible in the ways that we would understand. And yet from my understanding, the, the pivotal event is, is the Babylonian exile. Yeah, which was when, 6th century BCE. Yeah, the very beginning yeah, of the Yeah, so that's when the BCE. people of Judah, which is a small polity, um, roughly mapping onto the area that we would now identify as, you know, Jerusalem and the West Bank, those mm -hmm. sorts of areas. Um, that's when Judah was defeated and destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the elites from Judah were taken off into exile around into Mesopotamia, somewhere down into Egypt. Um, and that's when you get this theological shift. It was the elites who were primarily producing the literature that we find in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible today. Um, and that's when they undergo this kind of profound shift. So you can start to talk about the beginnings of what would later become Judaism at about this time. And of course, up to that, as as I learned from your books, um, God lived in the Temple of Solomon. He, it, it, you, he that was where he lived, according it's, to the people in Jerusalem. Whereas, like up, you know, up the road in Samaria, mm -hmm. Yahweh lived in a temple in Samaria, and he lived in a temple in you know. Oh, and you, you tell us the the Temple at Bethel was at least as as magnificent as the one in Jerusalem. Yeah, I think it was just as important. But socially. it's that exile, isn't it, that that um, causes the the rethinking that if 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 they can't 
confront their God personally in the temple, they need to develop a theology that, that, that brings him with them, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the gods had always been understood to be relatively mobile. Um, but I think because it was primarily the elites from Jerusalem who started to kind of inscribe this sort of shift theologically in the texts as we now find them, um, they're so bound up with Jerusalem and its monumentality, you know, this very urban kind of religion that was closely tied to things like statehood, kingship, high status priesthoods, that, yeah, when you're away from that physical place, you obviously you have to kind of think, well, you know, does this mean that has our God been defeated? Has our God abandoned us and deliberately sent us off into exile? Is he punishing us for some reason? You know, does that mean that we are so cut off from this deity now that we're in Babylonia? And, you know, for some of these, um, you know, you get reflections in biblical texts of some groups saying, yeah, we are cut off. Yes, he hasn't battered us. Or yes, he has been defeated. He's a weak deity. But a lot of the, the theological and ideological parameters of the text that we ha now have in the Hebrew Bible saying, no, 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 he's not, you know, just because you're not in Jerusalem doesn't mean to say that you, you can't have a relationship with this deity. This is a deity who is not confined or constrained by his own particular territories. You know, this is a deity who can reach into foreign enemy territories. Whereas uh, be before this, where his his feet were, you said you start the book with with his feet. Yeah. Do you know, I, I never really understood the significance of sacred ground before. Yeah. But it, it it's that, isn't it? Okay, it always seemed to me like a kind of sentimentality in, in various peoples. But it, it's that, that uh, that's where God's feet are if if in 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 the in the temple yeah and, and 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 the ark of the covenant is is God's footstool and these things yeah that's reflected in various traditions that we find you know when God says let us notice the plural language let us again make... because there were others yeah I he mean, wasn't he's alone one, yeah the, the Bible's very happy about him not he's not this solitary deity like mooching about the heavens on his own he's accompanied by other divine beings and cosmic powers and sort of divine messengers and and you know historically he was accompanied by other deities um most scholars now would agree that he had a consort why you know wife the god this is Asherah. one of the things that's going to drive people nuts um i i, I yeah. mentioned that i was going to be talking to you on social media and somebody who'd been a christian who'd been very measured up to that point Went ballistic. She's not going to talk about Asherah. What's she, what's she Asherah. called? Asherah. She's not going to talk about Asherah as God's wife, is she? And I said, yeah, I think she probably will. Yeah. In fact, I'll ask her to. Would yeah. you mind? Yeah, well, most scholars now agree that, I mean, we've got lots of references in um, in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, to, you know, Israelite and Judahite worshippers, you know, being condemned for worshipping Asherah, who's a deity, and the god Baal, and the host of heaven, which is this kind of catch-all label for all the other kind of divine beings and and um then this very polytheistic framework in which Yahweh worship emerged um and yet in the 60s and 70s you know there were some sensational inscriptions on earth which refer to Yahweh and his Asherah now most biblical biblical scholars today would agree that this is a reference to um the deity Asherah and we know I mean she was a version of um you know that's the localized Hebrew name of a goddess who was known all across um the southern Levant um by different sorts of names um Athirat is her name up in Syria for example 
where she was the wife of El. Where she I mean, was the you, wife of El. You're very clear on this, that um, that culturally uh, Yahweh is, is a descendant of El and, mm. and other other gods, but, uh, which is re- which is really interesting. Not not he's not supposed to be he's not blood relation, but <laughs> he 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 is a um, an expression of or a, what is the relationship? A version of I would say. Mm. So I think what I try to set out in the first chapter of the book is just to point out that we've got lots of um, sort of fragments of what look to be very old mythological motifs and poems um, in, say, in you know all sorts of biblical texts, including Deuteronomy, Book of Exodus, um, Genesis. And there's one particular fragment in Deuteronomy in which it talks about the high God um, who's known as Elion, which just means like the, the big high, the most high, mm-hmm. the most high deity, um, dividing up the nations according to the number of the sons of God. And sons of God was a very common Levantine label for the the lower tier deities who were, you know, the children, the offspring, if you like, of the high god Ale and his consorts. Um, and Yahweh appears as just one of these. He's given the people Israel or Jacob, um, as they're called in this particular text. Um, you know, they are apportioned to him. That's his particular share. And again, most scholars, you know, I know a lot of... Um, a, a lot of people, particularly believers, you know, think that this is all, you know, sensationalizing and sort of misinterpreting. Um, but most Hebrew Bible scholars, most scholars in my field would agree with me when we say, well, yeah, Asherah was worshipped as a consort of Yahweh. Um, she was a, an indigenous normative <laughs> feature of ancient Israelite religion for a, for a long time. So when did Yahweh ditch the missus? Well, it looks like... Here's when we things get a, a little more complicated. I mean, these inscriptions I'm referring to date from the 8th century BCE. Um, depending on when you date certain polemical texts in the Hebrew Bible, some scholars date them as early as the 7th century BCE. I'm not 100% convinced on that. But around the 6th century, when this the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile to Babylon happens, then certainly by the 5th century, you've got this huge polemic against um what was basically traditional, normative, ancient Israelite and ancient Judahite polytheism. But there's a real shift away from it in the light of this, you know, really culturally and religiously traumatic event. Um, Because it wasn't just, you know, Jerusalem's temple that was destroyed. You know, other places in Judah had already been under attack. You know, this was a place that was constantly being (laughs) invaded. It was caught between Egypt, Assyria and Babylonia. That's right. It's a really unimportant place in a really strategic area. Absolutely, in terms of trade and economics. I mean, it was huge. So that's why everybody's like trampling through it. I mean, Mm. and that's obviously something that's continued right up into the modern day. Um, And so, yeah, that seemed to have marked a really big shift um, in practice. And they're not, it's not just theological, you know, they're economic um, ideas about this. It's about a fracturing of a way in which a society functions. once you kind of once monarchy collapses, once all of you know the sort of some of the temple priesthoods are taken off into exile, it's like things change dramatically, and things you know we've seen it in various aspects of English history as well and European history. Look at how quickly religion can turn and change because of various political, economic, social factors. Um, so a similar kind of thing happened back in the sixth century BCE. Back to Legoland. So I do want to turn to his body. We we need to talk about that. You're brilliant on on all the feet and and the footprints in the uh, in 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 the uh, the Middle East or the, the Levant and, uh, around there. Um, let's talk about God's physical body mm. then a bit mm. in in this time B 
before he was so, sort of, uh, what do you call it, uncorporate or uncorporate? Uh, disembodied. Disembodied. <laughs> disembodied is good. <laughs> yeah. Before he was disembodied. <laughs> you probably know where I'm going to go next. Um, we, we have to talk about God's penis. You have, you, you, you have an account of a fascinating rabbinic discussion about whether God was circumcised. Yeah. How do they get there? How do they get into that discussion? I, I, it's not that they get into it. I mean, it's. Bec- I think in this in really important period of, of rabbinic studies, so we're talking about, you know, it's from like, say, from the first century CE up to about the fifth to the sixth century CE. Um, what a lot of rabbis were doing were they were seeking to understand not just their holy scriptures, but seeking to discern more mysteries about God by studying those those texts and scriptures and you know and it wasn't a monolithic movement at all I mean rabbinic scholarship was hugely varied and diverse like any kind of scholarship is and some aspects were far more mystical some aspects were far more sort of um dry um but basically it was it was a completely normal thing they they absolutely understood that man had been made in the image of God and they really worried about you know about circumcision yeah, yeah, well of course they did yeah. because man made in the in the image well man made in the image of god man is made uncircumcised and then it's well it's yeah the, well that's the, the covenant in other words yeah so because the covenant with abraham so obviously abraham is not the first man to be made according to the biblical story of the past um the first man is adam um and you know and god loves adam you know god creates adam because he he wants him to exist and 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 he wants adam's descendants to persist and one of the most important aspects about this is that the sign of the covenant that Abraham and that sort of experiences or undergoes with Yahweh, when Yahweh tells him, this is what you need to do, you need to circumcise yourself and your household and all your male descendants after you need to be circumcised. It was really perplexing for some rabbinic scholars to think, well, if circum- circumcision is, is a really important part of, of what it is to be in a good relationship with God, um yes it's a part of a promise that god makes that he will he will kind of give this particular territory to abraham his descendants and he will bless abraham with fertility and and it's a mark of um abraham's it, it renders him blameless or righteous it kind of modifies his body so that so he can much. walk with god because you need to be perfect to walk with god and yeah i mean that's that's putting it very simply so then they worried they said but but hang on noah is called blameless and righteous and Noah is said to walk with God, and yet nowhere in our text do we find that that he was circumcised. You know, well, how come? You know, was he circumcised? We're not told that he was circumcised. So, have we missed a bit in the story where God told Abraham, God told Noah to circumcise himself? Well, if so, that kind of devalues what you know the covenant with Abraham in which he's circumcised. And then they started to worry. Well, you know, does that mean that Adam was created with or without a, a foreskin? And so, well, they said, well, obviously. <laughs> Adam and Noah didn't need to be circumcised because they were already foreskin free. That basically Adam had create, been created without foreskin because, the rabbi said, he was made in the image of God. And therefore, you know, God is circumcised, clearly. They just assumed that God himself was circumcised because this is about perfecting the male body and kind of constructing a certain kind of masculinity. So, of course, you know, the paradigm of that is God himself. So, of course, he's circumcised. So, if he made Adam his own image... Adam was made without a foreskin. We 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 end up, or at least the 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 uh, the the image makers of the of the Christian era end up with uh, an old man with a big white beard. Yeah. Um, but that's not 
that's not the God in of the, the Bible in the West. That's true, yes. Because it, yeah. Was, but it's not the God of the Bible, is it? He's 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 uh, muscular. He's, he's trampling enemies underfoot, and he's he's uh, he's got uh, a ruddy face and and mm. vigorous dark hair. Yeah, m- mostly. So it's only when you get into the the the, the we get this notion early early Christianity um, sort of in in the West. Um, you know, in, in some parts of Eastern Christianity as well, but but particularly. Um, Early on in, in Western Christianity, they inherited this idea from that was mainly b- drawn from both the Book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, and the Book of Daniel, which is the the latest book, if you like, in the and, Old Testament. And, and which let's date it because it's the important. Book of Daniel, second century BCE, as recently as that. Yeah, maybe one hundred and fifty years before um, your Jesus. Oh no! Um, well, Less than that. yeah. Oh well, who knows when Jesus was? But yeah, basically, I mean, we're talking about Revelation. Revelation's probably early second century very end of the first century CE, early second century. So yeah, you've got this image of a high God enthroned in the heavenly realm. And, you know, his, he's got these sparkling, dazzling white robes on, white hair, um, white beards. And that kind of whiteness, um, this brightness, is basically, it's drawing on all sorts of much older cultural motifs. Um, it's nothing to do with the degenerative state you know this is not an aged god who is kind of whose hair's sort of turned gray because he's so old it's it's bound up with ideas of sparkling cleanness or cleanliness holiness and sort of a ritually um perfect kind of a sacred quite kind of quality a holiness but anyway this um in the book of daniel it's in chapter seven you've got this image of this white white hair dazzling white and sort of fiery kind of deity sitting on a throne conferring kingship on a much sort of younger divine being and this is drawn on very very this is a very old mythic trope that's been recycled i mean we find it all the way back in ugaritic culture mm-hmm. um which is sort of late bronze age and where um, where the god el that we were talking where about where it's el who's conferring kingship on mostly usually um in the ugaritic myths it's Baal, but we do get hints that there are other divine um and then this ancient story is recycled by the christians well christians love it because for them it makes complete sense so you know they think well this younger junior deity if you like who's being given this kind of heavenly kingship is obviously their dude jesus i mean but at the same time and even before that slightly before that you had ideas that that within um more conventionally jewish tradition i say conventionally jewish because obviously christianity was you know earliest the jesus movement was a jewish um, movement. It was. It's very hard. You can't sort of distinguish between the two. Um, so yeah, but you got you know the same similar sorts of claims were being made of Enoch of this being the second power um, in the heavens. This this heavenly being who you know was human, but then was kind of upgraded, if you like. Was it Enoch that, that uh, he had uh, transcribing his library? Yeah, yeah. But very, very human activities. I mean, your your whole book is littered with with um, with events like that 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 make you know God not being able to hear, having to go looking for Adam in the mm. Garden of Eden, and and all these things that that are that are not omnipotent and omniscient and not uh, d- detached from. Yeah, because all human of those existence. ideas. I mean, you 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 know, I'm not saying I'm not trying to draw a really sharp distinction between um, what was then and then you know what then Christianity did, but. But essentially, all of those ideas about omnipotence and omniscience, you know, they're they're so freighted. They're very they're very Christianized um, notions about what a deity is, and and notions that that derive in part from a lot of um, Greek philosophical ideas about the nature of 
reality, the nature of the cosmos, the differences, you know, what it is, what, what is the divine compared to what is the material and the, the human and um, the changeable. And so all of those, those qualities become, are philosophically laden and they're adopted and adapted by, you know, these very philosophically inclined early Christian theologians who decide that, you know, actually this is the way that, 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 that God really is. And the only way that he was embodied was in the person of Jesus. And, you know, it's, they're, they're trying to make sense of their own inherent polytheism, to be honest. They're trying to say, you know, how, how could God have become flesh? You know, does is God is it the same God or is this a junior God? Or you know, they're still trying to work out their own stuff, which is why they're so reliant on philosophy to try to understand and to make sense of what's essentially, you know, trying to explain away um, a kind of a miniature form of kind of Christian pluralism. Well, in a way, what what Christianity is 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 that Judaism with a big wodge of Greek thinking loaded onto it. But but, it? but the thing is, a lot of these ideas um, are pre-Christian so you, you find it you know they're drawing on so I, I think that would be false to say that you know it's it's Judaism plus Greek philosophy equals early Christianity that's completely that's com not the case at all because in the second century even in the third century BCE when it looks like some of the Hebrew scriptures were being translated into Greek or rendered into Greek translation makes it sound like it was a straight mm. word for word and, and it's not quite that simple um, but even then, you start to get a shift within certain Jewish scribal communities and intellectual communities away from a more anthropomorphic um, view of God, certainly, and away um, and and to and stuff that looks very looks to us from this vast distance and this vast time as oh, that's Greek philosophy. This was just normal philosophy. This was normal philosophical thinking oh, well, at the uh, time. Yeah, so, some some of the uh, Jewish thinkers had a big uh, Greek. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Philo of Alexandria, who was very Greek. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's Greek and and but also you know he just happens to be Jewish. So I mean, I think that's the thing. We're talking about certain sort of intellectual spheres in which you know I I, I wouldn't want to draw a sharp distinction between or this is Greek and this is Jewish and this is Jewish and this is Christian is you know we we use those labels really problematically um I think to kind of try to to tell a story about sh changes theological changes and philosophical changes but this was all you know a lot of this stuff came out of Alexandria in the third century BC the second century BC the first century. I mean this was a hugely cosmopolitan brilliant wonderful city and society and it was just something that was in the intellectual air um a particularly sort of broadly platonic way of thinking you know but there are other people that thought in much more sort of seemingly stoic ways i mean read some of paul's um letters in the in the new testament and his idea of something like you know the spirit of god looks much more stoic than it does well you platonic. deal with that as well you suggest that quite a lot of terms and words have been have been uh, smoothed or bowdlerized the spirit is is goes back to the breath of god where it's a literal breath yeah in, and, and you in find the earlier yeah. stories yeah i mean and you find that i mean these terms are all really elastic and deliberately so i mean look at the way that english terms are very elastic as well you know none of us are um, language is a really extraordinary thing. So yeah, I think it's it's about theological preferences in translation. So we're used to seeing when you open a Bible now into the New Testament and you read the word spirit, you know, it will probably have a capital letter on the front of it. Um, and it will probably have a de definite article in the front of it. But if you look at the Greek, that, it's not the, the, the case. Sometimes it could be a spirit or just spirit. And you know, it, it, why, you know, there's no capital letter in, in, this, in the way that we use it in English syntax today. So it's you know, we 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 are reading texts not just in um, translation of language, but in terms of translation of culture. 
Um, and, and that's why I think it's, you know, just by pointing out things like, well, yeah, the word pneuma in Greek, it can mean a breath or a spirit or a wind or the spirit or spirit or, you know, it, it's... It, so it's, it's as plastic as, as, as the original. Yeah, and context matters. The yeah. Hebrew. So, well, yeah, and in the Hebrew, obviously the term, the primary term is ruach. So when we read about the ruach of God in the very beginning of the book of Genesis was hovering over the water. Um, again, open a lot of Bibles and you'll find that translated as spirit, sometimes with a big capital S, but it could mean wind or breath, which is probably what it does mean in those texts. Are there, finally, are there any deliberate um, mistranslations? You, you've got, you, you, you refer to there's a, a passage <clears throat> where... Um, uh, the face of God. See, he confronts the face of God, somebody, and um, we we now read it in the Bible as in being in the presence of God. Um, are there any deliberate ones, or are they? You get a lot of ancient deliberate ones. You know, in in the ancient context where things have been deliberately changed because the scribes are really sensitive. They're like, oh, so for example, um, there's a passage in which in the, in the Hebrew Bible in which people are instructed to come and bring food offerings basically to the deity um in in his presence and in the greek text the ancient greek it's much more clear that this seems to indicate a you know that the deity you put it before his face whereas in the the later hebrew translation it's complicated in terms of manuscript the the later manuscript tradition um it it's been sort of fudged it's kind of been sort of loosened up a bit um there's a bit where for example, I mean, you get names changed all the time. You can see deliberate changes to names. So things like um, Ishbal is the name of one of the sons of Saul, but it's been it's been sort of changed in in later Hebrew tradition, manuscript tradition. So when the copyists are reproducing these texts over and over, you know, they're changing it to Ishbosheth, which kind of means they're changing the word Baal, which is the name of a deity, um, to a word that looks like it might mean something like shame, man of shame, Ishbal. Man of man of Baal or man of the the day the divine Lord becomes Ish Boshet, a man of shame. So you you know that that kind of deliberate alteration, fudging, um, theological transformation, a smoothing um, happens in the ancient world as much as it does in in the contemporary world. Well, I shall not read the Bible again without your book next to it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, so the book is uh, God and Anatomy by Professor Francesca Stavrakopoulou. It's published by Picador mm -hmm. at £25. Thank you so much for talking to oh, us. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Bye. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on Tim at green-shoot.com.